All right. We made it. Last session. Well done, everyone. It, um, it's been a real joy to be able to spend time this weekend with you guys, getting to talk with some of you a little bit more. I'm really encouraged by, I would say, the uh, intensity or the seriousness with which so many of you uh, intend to follow Jesus Christ. And um, I commend you for that. And what we're talking about is that's really what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is not designed to be kind of an add-on hobby feature to your life or maybe just a, kind of an augmentation to your life. This is designed to be at the very core of who you are. And as I have talked with many of you, I can tell that's the way you take it, and that's very encouraging. So we're looking at, again, what it means to be an authentic Christian. Our guide is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. starts with the two words, if, then. If you are a Christian, then this is what's true of you. The 17 verses that follow list the key identifying features that are present in the life of someone who follows Jesus. Now, again, the purpose of these identifying features are not, uh, they're not performance markers. They're simply indicators of someone who really has decided to follow Jesus Christ. So we don't really work our you know, effort as high as we can, and we get to a certain point where it's like, okay, now we've, we've just passed the 80%, so now we've earned the fact that we're Christians. That's not the way it goes. It starts with the decisions. And these are the indicators. There's, first of all, there's three decisions that Christians make. They're represented in the three words that are placed right before Christ in the first four verses of Colossians 3. They're, they all start with the letter W. They are with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. So we'll just recap a little bit before we finalize what we're talking about today. If you're a Christian, you've discovered the hidden treasure that the entire world is searching for. Everybody's searching for the hidden treasure. They're looking, everyone's looking for the secret of life. And you have discovered it. Everybody's looking for what they can do, or maybe what they can own, or maybe what they can ingest in order to feel alive on the inside. But Christians are those who have concluded that the secret of life, what everyone's looking for, lies at its source. And that is Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh. So because of that conclusion, they decide that they want to attach their life to him. They decide to be with him. As they attach their life to him, what that does is that changes the trajectory of their life, both now and into eternity. They are raised with him. And that changes what they live for now. They decide to value what heaven values because, well, that's where Christ is. And therefore, their hearts and their minds turn towards what heaven values. And that, over time, begins to change and shape what they value here because of where Christ is. What that means is, over time, Christians don't waste near as much time and near as much money chasing all of the many dead ends that this world has to offer. Especially at this stage in life, if you decide to really be with Christ, you're going to save all kinds of wasted time and all kinds of wasted money that other people will spend looking for the buried treasure. Because you know where it is. It's in Christ. And because of that, authentic Christians decide to patiently wait for the day when Christ shows up and makes everything all right. Now, like anyone, we would prefer that things work out now. But if they don't, we're okay with that. We don't demand that life come together for us now. We know that's not really going to happen until Jesus comes back to wrap up history. 
Now, with these three decisions in place, Christians go to work on the implications of these decisions. That's what we talked about last night. They put in place three practices. We talked about this yesterday morning, actually, last night. The old practice, we looked yesterday morning, of searching for buried treasure here is put to death. Not once, but repeatedly. And then the old patterns of using anger and deception to manipulate people are put off, and they're replaced with the patterns of, and the practices of love. Not the sentimental, emotional definition of love that most people think of right now, but a real intelligent, practical grasp on how to be of real help to other people. Now, this does not come easily. The old patterns run deep. It takes a lot of practice, and it requires a lot of help. And it turns out, not only do you face an internal battle when you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you also gain an unseen enemy who now is set on your destruction. That is Satan himself. You decide to be with Christ, he takes note of that. You have just painted a target on yourself. Whereas before, he would mostly leave you alone because you were already doing kind of what he wanted you to do. Now, you've got opposition. You've now entered a war that you honestly are unmatched for. I'm unmatched for. Now, thankfully, Christ is far more powerful than the enemy or your past patterns. But in order for the power of Christ to be of any use, we have to let his power gain access to our daily lives. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The key word in the final three verses is the word let. So let me review the three keys. The first key to the first section were the W words, with Christ, where Christ, when Christ. The key word that unlocked the middle section of the lists was the word put. We put things to death, and we put away things, and we put on things. The key word here is let. This is the word that's repeated in these final verses. Positively, the word let means to allow something to happen. You let it occur. Negatively stated, it means that you don't prevent it from happening. You let it happen. So what is it exactly that we are not to prevent from happening and we are to allow access to our lives? Well, it's the power of Christ. We need to let his power into our life. Now, the power of Christ that is available to help us in this life comes in three forms in these verses. Here they are. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, in the name of Christ. Those are the three powers that we have access to as followers of Christ, and we desperately need. Now, like any power, Christ's power must be connected. It must be plugged in in order for it to actually power our lives and gain access to us and have effect on us. And each power has a point of connection, a let, that allows the power to flow from Christ into our lives. The let that allows the power of Christ's peace to help us is the word rule. In the Greek language, literally it's stated, let rule Christ's peace. That's how it's said, let rule Christ's peace. The let for Christ's word is to dwell. The Greek would say it this way, let dwell Christ's name or Christ's word. And then the let For Christ's name is to live, to do everything in his name. It's translated do everything, but in the Greek it literally says, let live Christ's name. So these are the three powers we have access to if we will allow it. 
We need to let rule Christ's peace and let dwell Christ's word and then let live Christ's name. Together, these three are kind of like a three-pronged plug. You know, those kind you just plug into the wall. All three of them give you access to the power of Christ. You know, all the electrical power in the, power in the world does no good if the appliance is not plugged in. Christ's vast power does us no good if we won't let his power access to our lives. So we're going to look at these in turn. First of all, the peace of Christ. Colossians 3.15 says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The absence of peace is a kind of a restlessness or an agitation on the inside. And that absence of peace will power down pretty much any effort you are putting into rearranging the practices of your life. You may be working on the practices of love, and all of a sudden something happens and you become anxious and you become worried, and whatever you were doing in practicing the scales of love is now set to, set to the side because now you're consumed with whatever you're worried about. The absence of peace shuts down all of the practices that you've been working on. And what will tend to happen when you're in turmoil, when you're in anxiety, is you will most likely return to your most recent search for buried treasure somewhere here. You will try to hold on to something that you can see. You'll try to make an idol out of something here. You'll go back to the old familiar ways of trying to manage people in in life rather than loving them and taking the risk of sacrificing for them. Now, Jesus has the kind of peace that can calm you down, can calm me down, and can rule a heart, even in the most dire of circumstances. But we need to let him rule. So how do we do that? The word rule in the Greek language here literally means to be referee over. It was the rule they would use uh, for a referee of of a sporting event. So what a referee does is a referee applies the rules of a contest on the field of play. So what's the field of play in this example? Well, it's our hearts. Not just our emotions, but the thoughts that produce those emotions. So what it's saying is let the peace of Christ blow the whistle whenever your thoughts are out of bounds. Let the whistle blow. Now, like in any sporting event, The players must first understand and agree to the rules. Without that, the referee's whistle will have no power. So what are the rules that apply to the peace of Christ? Now, there are several, but I just want to give you two this morning. First is what I call the team rule. You know, rules are never personal. They're always collective. I don't know if you've ever played a game with a young child who's just learning how to play games. They keep making up rules. That's really not how rules work. You don't just, you know, something's changed and now we have a new rule. No, that's, that's not the way it works. The rules exist independent of the individuals who are playing the game or competing in the contest. That's why there's no such thing as my football rules. No, there's the rules of the NFL. There's no such thing as my basketball rules. No, it's the rules of the NBA. And so by joining a team, players agree to play by the rules of the league that that team is a part of. And referees then blow the whistle and officiate based on those rules. Now, a similar thing is true of a Christian. When you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you've decided to be with him. But a part of that decision is you've also decided decided to join the body of Christ. That's his expression here on earth. 
you've decided to join a league. It's called the body of Christ. That's why it says, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So peace is not something that you can come up with all by yourself. You need to be part of a team. God's team. Now, like any team in athletics or competition, you you don't join the league as an individual. You join the league by joining a specific team in that league. So authentic Christians are not just individual followers of Christ all by themselves. They have also joined the overall body of Christ by attaching themselves to a team, to a particular church. If you were uh, talking with someone and they told you, that they were a football player. What would be a couple of questions that would pop into your mind? Probably one of the first questions would be, oh, who do you play for? What team are you on? Another question that would pop in your mind is, what position do you play? What do you do? Now, if in response to what team do you play for, they say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really believe in organized football. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a football player at large. I kind of, you know, I carry a football. I got my pads in the car. And every once in a while, I'll just run around in a field with my pads on, and I'm a football player. I've never heard of that kind of football player. And if they do say, oh, oh, no, I'm, I'm I'm a part of the team. I play for this team. And then you say, well, what position do you play on the team? It's like, well, you know, again, I don't like to nail myself down to a particular position. I kind of, well, I, I like to participate in the way that I see fit. And so, and I don't like to learn the plays and stuff either. That's, that takes a lot of time and work. So I, I just show up on the field of play and participate in the way that I think will best help the team. And they let you do that? Well, no, not really. That's why I've been on many teams. <laughs> and the same kind of thing happens whenever I'm talking with someone and they tell me that they're a Christian. One of my first questions is, that's great. What church are you a part of? And increasingly, they'll say, well, you know, I don't really believe in organized church. I, um, I'm kind of a Christian at large. It's like, huh. Well, that's, that's real different than the way it seemed to be in the New Testament. And then they say, oh, no, no, I'm a part of this church. And you say, well, then, then what do you do there? It's like, well, you know, I, I kind of show up. And I, I'll do it as a, well. That's, again, that's not the way it seemed to be in the New Testament. And this is one of the reasons I think increasingly as you read all the studies, there is an increasing amount of loneliness and turmoil, even, in the, even among Christians. Because there, there's a real lack of understanding of how important the body of Christ is in following Jesus Christ. So this is the team rule. If we're going to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, We've got to join a team. That's part of how his peace flows into our lives. Then there's the grace rule. In the New Testament, peace has a buddy. You often see peace attached to another term, and that is grace. These two words, grace and peace, show up again and again and again in the New Testament. In fact, 18 times at the beginning of a New Testament book, you see these together. Here's an example just from the book of Titus. Titus 1.4, Paul says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
These are always paired together, grace and peace. What does grace mean? Grace occurs not only in the context of life, but particularly in the context of difficulty. That's usually when we talk about grace. If everything's going great, we normally don't talk about grace. If there's no need for forgiveness, we don't talk about grace. Grace is applied whenever there's sin, whenever there's a mess, whenever there's a problem. That's when we need grace. This is why we describe an athlete or maybe a dancer as being graceful. It's because they are not doing the easy. By their great strength and their skill, they are doing the seemingly impossible and making it look easy. And so we say, that dancer is graceful. If we tried to do it, it would not be graceful. Or that basketball player is graceful because they're doing what is impossible for most people, and they're making it look easy. You know, we don't look at someone just walking towards that door and saying, wow, that, that's graceful. Like, No, that's, that's not hard. We all do that. Grace is applied when things get really hard in difficulty. And this is what God does. He takes the messes of life and the seemingly impossible situations of life, and he works them around into something good. Here's my working definition of grace. I think, we, I think we've got it up here. Grace is the power and skill of God that does the seemingly impossible. We often tend to limit grace just to the forgiveness of sin, which is the major part of grace. But the word and the term grace in the New Testament means more than just forgiving sin. It means forgiving sin and then rebuilding out of the mess that that sin caused. Untangling what's been tied up putting pieces together of what's been broken and shattered. That's what grace does. I think most of God's best work occurs not in the stages of new things, but in the renewal stages of life after something's broken. You know, in this broken world, this is why peace is so fragile. It's because we're all struggling with different things. We all have brokenness in our past, and we're struggling to put life together again. This is why we struggle to have peace. That's why peace has a buddy, and that is grace, God's grace. Now, it may be hard for you to see what God's grace might do with your life right now. This is another reason why we have been called in one body to this peace. Because all around, even this room right now, just the conversations I've had, I have heard conversations that give evidence of the fact that God is putting together the pieces of some brokenness. Now, you don't see that just sitting here listening to someone like me talk. This is why it's so important to be a part of a ministry like Christian Challenger, to be part of a church. And not just show up and attend and listen to guys talk and sing songs, but to also get involved in that church. Get involved in that ministry because that's when you get to know the stories of people and you get to see God's grace at work in someone else's life and that gives you a sense of hope and peace that maybe God could do that in my life. So let rule the peace of Christ. The next is the word of Christ. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
What this is saying is, let the words of Christ become your home, a place where you dwell. Now, what's true of your home? Well, it's the foundation from which you do life. It was in a home where you and I grew up and we learned the patterns that now shape our life. It's where we go to rest and recharge so that we can go out and face another day. Now, if there are problems at home, boy, it eventually affects every part of life. So for the Christian, the words of Christ become their new home, their new foundation. And it's supposed to be a lavish home, a rich home. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. We're not supposed to be building little shacks to hang out in. These are, this is supposed to be mansion stuff. So how does that occur? Well, three ways. First of all, if the word of Christ is going to be a home for you, you're going to have to learn the words of Christ. You're going to have to learn the words. The words are going to have to go from the pages of the book to something that I have read and I understand and I now remember. My copy of the Bible, the words of Christ are printed in red. Maybe you've seen these kinds. Those are, those are the words that Christ said while he was here on earth. But the words that precede the words of Christ are absolutely essential if I'm going to understand the red words. They're the foundation that allows everything that Jesus said and taught have a context that makes sense. So I've got to learn those words if I'm going to really understand the red words. And then all the words that come after the red words, those are written by individuals who saw Jesus. This is the first generation of people after Jesus left who actually did what he said to do. And those words contain important instructions on what Jesus meant by this. So I'm going to have to learn those. Those are kind of like the footnotes. I'm going to need to learn those too. So when we talk about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's really talking about all of Scripture. We need to learn them all. When um, we set out a couple, well, it's probably... 12 years ago now, we completed construction on a, on a building project for our church. We'd been in a rental facility for most of our life, and we were finally able to purchase some land, and we built a couple uh, of buildings on that land. So we got into the whole construction process, and I want to show you just a couple of pictures of some of the construction documents that were used to build the buildings on our site. So here's, here's one of the pages. Uh, does that make sense to you? Now, not, none of you architects, you can't speak up on this. But everyone else, does this, this make sense to you? You recognize this? No, I said none of you architects, yeah. <laughs> you know, I looked at these and I was like, all right, if you say this is, these are plans, these are plans, because we're paying a lot for these, so I hope these work. But this is, this is what building plans look like. They don't make a lot of sense to me. Probably not to most of you. That's because... I haven't spent the time that's needed to learn how to read and implement construction plans. I can get a basic idea by looking, you know, okay, that, that looks like the roof, you know, I, I get that. I can see the general outline. But I really don't know how to use them to build anything. And I show you this because this is the way the Bible appears to pretty much all of us initially. You can pick up a few general ideas from the pages of the Bible, but most people look at the Bible and they open it and they read it and they go, I don't get it. This is kind of confusing. And so they tend to just set it down and say, well, that's too complex. That takes too much time. 
But followers of Christ have made a commitment to learn this book. It takes time to learn. It can be learned, but it just takes time. Now, the truth is, God has made us free. We can construct any kind of life we want. But in the pages of the Bible, he has given us the plans to build life. We build without plans. It turns out to be a very different kind of building. I've traveled some in Africa. There's a lot of buildings in Africa. It's like, I don't think there was a plan. It looks like this just kind of was thrown together. Now, you can build a life that way, but that's a very different kind of dwelling than one that's built from God's plans. So when we read the Bible, we're not just reading interesting stories and hearing of some good advice for us to consider. We're looking at the building plans that God has given us for the purpose of building the kind of life that lasts and can be a real blessing to ourselves and to those around us. But like all building plans, these words, the words in the Bible, require much more than just an occasional or casual glance. Like any set of plans, they're just going to sit there. It's up to us to let them in, to read and to learn them. So what authentic Christians do over time, over the years, in 15-minute and 30-minute and sometimes hour-long increments, on a daily basis, they carve out the time to read these words and to learn these words and to try to figure out how to build with these words. And as the years go by, they construct a very different kind of life. This is a long-term project, a lifelong project. So if the word of Christ is going to dwell in us richly, we first need to learn the words. We need to read them and understand them. Secondly, we need to now use Christ's words. Now, those plans that I put up there of the building... Did that look like a home to you or even a church building to you? Not really. How about your copy of the Bible? Does that look like a home? No, it just looks like a book. So when do the drawings, construction drawings, and artist renderings become a home? Well, it's when they're actually used to build something with. And it's the same with the pages of the book of the Bible, books of, or the books of the Bible. Descriptions about how to structure your thoughts and your lives Don't become a home until you actually build in and move in. Then it's internalized. So how do you do that? Well, there's one goal that's accomplished by two actions in this verse. It says, you do this by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The goal is wisdom. Wisdom basically is the ability to know what to do right now in light of what God has said. That's wisdom. It's different than knowledge. Knowledge is just an understanding of the facts. That's a part of wisdom. But wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge. Knowledge shows up on a written test. Someone who knows stuff, they know the right answers. Wisdom, though, shows up in the test of real life. They actually do what is right before God. Like when it comes to construction, we build a real life day by day, choice by choice. So how do we do that? Well, the two words that are mentioned here are by teaching and by admonishing. Teaching. There's two parts to the teaching equation. There's the student part and there's the teacher part. If we are to become at home with these words, we need to do both. We need to hear 
and learn about God's words from those who know more than we do, who are further ahead than we are, and who have built a life out of these words. We need to learn from them. We need to be students under their teachings. That's why there's a teaching component in gatherings like this or when you gather on Sunday morning. They are practical tips about how to build a life. You need to put yourself in the student mode. But if all you do is sit and listen to someone teach about God's words, you're not going to get very far. You need to also get on the other side of the equation and be able to teach. Now, you don't have to stand up and do what I'm doing here. But you're going to have to be able to talk about and help other people understand the words of the Bible and how to use that to build a life and how to make decisions that are right. Let me ask you this. Who knows the material better, the teacher or the student? Teacher. To teach you, I've had to spend a lot more time with these verses than you have. I've taught on these 17 verses by the time I get done here, I guess maybe like three hours or so. But I didn't just come up with these ideas like three days ago. Now, this has been a long project for me. Years and years ago, I decided to make these 17 verses a dwelling for me. And the reason I decided to do that is because I was working through the New Testament and I made a commitment that I was going to stop skipping over the sections I didn't understand. That's okay to do for the first few times, but I I was realizing, like, there's sections of the New Testament that I get to and I'm like, okay, I move on. That's, That's interesting or that's weird. And I just decided, I'm, I'm going to, however much time it takes. And so I, I got to this section, I read through it, and I got kind of glazed over by all the lists, and I thought, this is one of those things where I, I don't really know what this is talking about. I don't really understand this. I don't know how to build with this. And so I decided, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to ponder. So I first memorized these 17 verses. That's where I started. And then what I did is I spent, and this is an estimate, But my guess is over how long it took me in personal quiet times, I have spent over 100 hours in personal time pondering these verses. And that's just been in 30-minute increments at a time in the mornings before I head off to work. And what has happened as a result of those 100 or so hours is these 17 verses are now like a comfortable den for me. I love these verses. In fact, all you have to do is walk up behind me and say, if then, and I'd be, what? (laughs) You talking about my home? My favorite dwelling? I just love these verses. I come back to them again and again and again to get my thinking back on track. So reading these verses, building with these verses, is like going home to me. So my challenge to you is pick some part of God's word, and build a den out of it. Be able to explain it to somebody else. You know, the parts of God's word that you're at home with, you can describe, you can explain to somebody else. That brings us to the next thing, the admonishing. So teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonishing means to correct someone. Now, this is not talking about becoming the Bible police and telling everybody what they're doing is wrong. What this is saying, remember, this is talking about you do this with all wisdom. That's not wise, to hit people over the head with the Bible. The idea is to get yourself prepared 
to help people with the problems that they face in life. You know, life has a way of providing all kinds of correction in the form of personal pain. People all around are in pain. And when people are in pain, they usually try to figure out what's causing the pain and what they might do to prevent this from happening again in the future. And if you have experience with the same kind of pain, and you have learned what the Bible says about that pain in this area of life, you can be of tremendous help to that person. You can help them. So think of the problems that you and others commonly have. And then ask yourself, do I have a real clear understanding of how the Bible would answer this? Where would, that, where would I find the answer? How would I explain this answer? And then find those answers and then get ready to help whenever someone close to you needs help. That's what admonishing means. You know, someone's struggling with worry and if that's something you've really wrestled with and you've learned what God says about that, well, then you're in a great position to say, you know, man, I really have struggled with that too. And here's something I've learned that's been a real help to me. Well, now you're admonishing. You're helping correct them, their thinking, just like your thinking's been corrected. Now, it doesn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, reading it in all wisdom. No, it says teaching and admonishing one another. The idea is that we have to have conversations about the words of Christ. Now, why, why can't we just read it privately? I mean, if reading this book would change us, we could do it alone. But this can't be done just as an individual. It can be done partly that way, but it needs to now break out into our conversations. We can learn from a teacher that we don't know by listening to them you know, online. But we're going to learn more from someone whose life we actually know. This is one of the great advantages of being a part of ministries like this and being a part of a church. You actually know the people that are teaching. You know their wife and their kids, and you know whether or not this is the kind of life you want to build. So admonishing doesn't usually happen remotely. We can only be of real help to people up close. Now, if the Bible is just an academic book to learn, then it doesn't matter where you get the info. But if it's a blueprint for life, then you need to join with others in trying to build with it. So we learn the words of Christ. We use the words of Christ. And here's the strangest one. We sing the words of Christ. This is the next thing it says. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Really? Why do we have to sing these words? It's because singing has the ability to get words to sink into your heart. My granddaughter knows her ABCs. And she learned them not by memorizing all 26 letters from a list, but by singing the ABC song, right? Now, I could sing the first few letters of the ABC song, but then you would not be able to get that song out of your mind for the rest of the day, so I don't want to do that to you. But that's the kind of power that music has. You know, I find myself, some of the songs we've been singing this week, and I find myself walking back to my cabin singing the songs. That's just what music does. It, it has the ability to penetrate deep into our soul, deep into our memories. So if we want to make a home out of these words, we're going to have to sing some of them. 
Then it gives us some categories for singing. We sing psalms. You know, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament is kind of the original songbook. You know, many of the songs that you would sing in this context or you sing in church, they actually come directly from the book of Psalms in the Bible. And then we sing hymns. And one of the songs we just sang was, was a hymn. A hymn, basically, these are songs of the church that have stood the test of time. They were written usually more than 100 years ago. And we're still singing them because the words are that good. And then there's spiritual songs. Those are the newer songs about Christ that often reflect the current music styles. That's most of what we sing. Now, you may have a favorite song, but the point of singing is not that we sing your favorite song. It's not that we pick a particular style that you like, but that we're doing it together. We can't just have the effect of this by singing the songs in our car. We can do that. That's fine. That'll help. But when we sing together like we do in a gathering like this, it's delivering a powerful message to one another. What's the message? The message basically is Jesus is real. This stuff is real. He is worthy of our focus. He is worthy of our allegiance. We are not crazy people to trust him and to follow him. And that's what happens. I'm sitting in the back watching you sing, and it's an encouragement to my faith. Because as I've gotten to know a number of you, you appear to be a fairly intelligent group of people. And you're committed to this, like I'm committed to this. Because what happens is we go out into the world, every once in a while we start thinking, am I crazy to believe this? Because a lot of people think we're crazy to believe this. I don't think we are, but that's the general thought out there is we're kind of crazy. And then we gather together in a group like this, and we start singing, and we looked around at other intelligent people like ourselves who have really thought about this and have come to these same conclusions, and we have this sense of, okay, at least I'm not the only crazy one. There's a lot of other crazy people that I like that I get to be crazy with together. And it just builds our faith. It encourages us. Now, this only occurs if you sing. So if you don't open your mouth to sing, your voice is going to be missing. You know, if what you see as you look around you are people with their mouths closed, your faith is not strengthened by that. Now, if you don't believe this yet, then by all means, don't sing. Don't feel pressure to pretend that you believe. Feel free to check it out. But if you've decided to follow Jesus Christ and you gather with other Christians to sing, let it go. Sing. Even if your voice is not that great. It doesn't say about how well you sing. It just says sing. So just sing. If you believe this, then you can really help add to the faith of others by opening your mouth. And as it says in another part of the New Testament, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We actually speak to one another as we sing together. We sing to Christ. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that the music is just the instruction or the introduction, rather, to the main attraction you know, when, when, when someone like me speaks. I've noticed a lot of, a lot of people where I pastor, 
you know, we sing three or four songs before I get up to speak. And they're coming in kind of in the middle of the last song. Part of it is just scrambling to get there on time. But part of it is they're, they're not into the music. It's like, well, as I've talked with some of them, that, you know, we don't do this for entertainment purposes. This, this is not a concert. You can go to a lot of concerts. This is not a concert. This is as an important part of what we do as the message is. This is part of how we worship. This is part of how our faith is built. When we do this, the power of Christ gains access to our life through his words. The last power source is the name of Christ. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The way this is said in the Greek is let live Christ's name. The name that is above all name, the most powerful name. So to do something in the name of another means that you're doing and saying what they would do, what they would say if they were here. So to live Jesus' name means to live as his representative in front of the people that you see. We are representing Christ to the people that we interact with. It's very important to understand that whenever you decide to be with Christ, what you do and what you say now falls under his name. You still keep your name, but his name now comes with everything you do and everything you say because you're with him. Before the watching world, we are bringing to life the one, Jesus Christ, who is the watershed decision for everybody. Now, that's an amazing privilege and challenge. The problem tends to be is we only have a vague idea of what Jesus might actually do in our situation. You know, Jesus never worked or lived where we work or live. You know, if I ever was going through a day and I came across a demon-possessed man out in the country and I noticed a herd of pigs off to the side, I might begin to say, Wait, I've heard about this. I'm referring to a story of Jesus in the New Testament where he encountered a demon-possessed man and put the demons in the pigs and the pigs head off a cliff. But I've never found myself in that situation. I've never (laughs) encountered a demon-possessed guy, seen a herd of pigs with a cliff, and thought, I know what to do. (laughs) And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think I'm going to run into that situation. Jesus did that, but I'm probably never going to face that situation. It's never happened to me. I'm married. Jesus was not married. I get cut off in traffic. There were no cars when Jesus walked the earth. I get irritated talking to tech support. There was no tech support. There was no technology when Jesus walked the planet. So how do we live the name of Christ? How do we let live his name? Do everything in his name. We see Jesus isn't after a kind of a reenactment of his life where we mimic him and do exactly everything the script says. Now what Jesus did is he constructed a way for us to live and a way for us to speak and a way for us to relate to people that can be applied in any place and at any time. This is why Doing everything in the name of Jesus Christ 
follows letting the words of Christ dwell in you richly. If you don't know the words of Christ, if you don't know his way, then you're not going to know how to respond to tech support and what to do when someone cuts you off in traffic and how to handle a real challenge in your marriage. But if you've allowed his words to begin to change you and you're beginning to build on this, then you have a greater chance of, oh, I know what to do. To say what needs to be said in his name. To do what needs to be done in his name. Now, these three let, these three let phrases, they address the three most common ways we short-circuit the power of Christ. When we don't let his peace rule, worry takes over our mind and our emotions. And it just shuts down our growth. When we don't let his words dwell in us richly, we eventually believe a lie. And we end up wasting our days pursuing something that just isn't real. If we don't let his name live, then we become selfish. And we tend to make this all about us. And whenever we do any of those, it's like pulling the plug out. The power just goes down. Any of these three can derail an authentic Christian. So what the Christian life involves over and over again is just plugging back into these powers. Just plugging back in. This plug is, is like one of those plugs that you can't keep in the side of the wall. Have you ever had those where you plug it in and it falls out? And you plug it in and it falls out. That's the way these are. You don't just plug it in. All right. I, I've got it. No, you've got to keep letting the whistle blow on the peace of Christ when you're out of bounds in your thoughts. You've got to keep building from the words of Christ. You've got to keep living the words of Christ. You've just got to keep plugging in. So the first task, I think, of any, every day is you wake up, you grab the plug that has now fallen on the ground, and you plug it back in. Then the power begins to flow. And then about 10 o'clock in the morning, well, there's the plug on the ground again. And you've got to take a little moment and plug it back in. And we just do this day after day after day. So, that's Colossians 3, 1 through 17. What I'd like to do is have a stand, and we're going to read all 17 verses out loud as we wrap up today, and then I'll close this in prayer. I think we have all the slides. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If you need to kind of stretch, get the blood going, Sunday morning. Here we go, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, 
but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your words that tell us how to build a life. We are so thankful for the peace that you give, Jesus, because so often our hearts are just full of anxiety and turmoil. We pray that you would help us to live carrying your name, saying what you would say, doing what you would do in our context. And we need help and power from you to do this. We ask for that. We pray you give clarity to us on the first steps you want us to take out of all that we've talked about this weekend. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.